Let's pray together. Speak, Lord, in the stillness while we wait on thee. Hush our hearts to listen in expectancy. Amen. If the Lord had not been on our side, if the Lord hadn't been on our side, one thing we all have is a past. But how do we view it? Well, a lot depends on the way you look at things. One of my favorite photographs of uh, the late great President George W. Bush is the one that I hope Paul is going to put up now. George Bush famously visited South Korea and looked up towards the demilitarized zone and looked very official, looked very presidential. But anyone, what was wrong? The wrong way around, exactly. If you had the binoculars like that, you're not going to see too much. You're not going to see too clearly. And very often, that's the way we look at things. That's the way we look at our past. We look at it the wrong way around. Uh, sometimes we get it wrong. Our late queen memorably uh, observed towards the end of her reign that recollections can vary. And the way we look at our past can certainly, the ways we look at our past can vary a lot. Do you look at your past and see missed opportunities and mistakes that can lead to a burden of guilt and regret? Do you look at your past and see God's hand at work, which instead leads to a spirit of thankfulness and praise can you look back and see God in those moments of illness and pain, in the times of fear and danger, in those times of failure and success, in all of those ordinary days that don't seem to count? Can you see God? Well, if you can look at your past that way, that will lead to, to much greater trust and much greater gratitude as we look at the present. You see, one way of looking at the past says, if only, if only I hadn't married him, if only I had worked harder for those exams, if only that child hadn't run out into the road. The other way of looking at the past says, if it hadn't been for God, if it hadn't been for God strengthening me, I would have had to give up. If it hadn't been for God guiding me, I would have made that foolish decision. If it hadn't been for God giving me courage, I would never have got involved in that ministry that has given me such satisfaction. How do you recollect your past? If, is your view the, oh, if only view? Or is your view, if it hadn't been for God? David took that latter view. If it hadn't been for God, he proclaims, there would have been catastrophe. And that, in essence, is the psalm. You can sum it up in nine or 10 words. We were in trouble, 
God rescued us, praise his name. Now, when I first read the psalm, my thoughts were, this is easy. Phil had given it to me and he said, could you do one, two, four, the next in our series on the Song of Ascents? And I thought, well, that's going to be a very short sermon. I hope, it's, I hope it still will be, by the way. But over the past month, as I've reflected on the psalm, I've been amazed at how much is contained in it and how much it speaks to us today. Firstly, let's look at the singers and their song. David wrote it. And although there were many, many tough times in his life, the experts think that it bears special reference to a time just after he was crowned king and the Philistines came and attacked Israel, thinking this new king is going to be easy prey. You can read about it afterwards in 2 Samuel chapter 5. And the language of this psalm fits the situation perfectly. If the Lord hadn't been on our side when men attacked us, when their anger flared against us, they would have swallowed us alive. The flood would have engulfed us. The raging waters would have swept us away. Now, the writer of 2 Samuel used much the same language, except he said that God delivered David and that the Lord broke out like waters before the Philistines and God swept the Philistines away. After King David, generations of pilgrims chose this psalm to be one of the songs that they sang as they went on pilgrimage to Jerusalem. On the journey, they would have experienced many difficulties, bandits, marauders, floods, drought, harsh terrain, attacks from wild animals. Yet their resolve was great and they traveled on towards the city, encouraging each other with the words of King David. If the Lord had not been on our side, let Israel say, if the Lord had not been on our side, but God was on their side, and that made all the difference. Do you sense the strong emotions in the psalm? David starts his ecstatic song of deliverance, and it occurs to him, not everybody's joining in. He pauses, and he urges all of Israel to sing in praise. I think Adrian captured it very well when he read it. Many, many years ago, when I first provided music in the church, and we had Stephen and Philip and David Moore all playing their brass instruments, in the instructions that they got each Sunday, sometimes there was a rather cryptic uh, instruction, L-I-R, let it rip. And that's what David is telling his listeners here. If the Lord hadn't been on our side, let it rip. If the Lord had not been on our side, we would have been destroyed. But if there's delirious joy here, there's also fear and desperation. Three very powerful images of terror and despair emerge. And maybe some of them uh, resonate with you this morning. The angry armies are coming like wild animals to devour them and tear them to pieces. And then there's the idea of being swept away 
by an irresistible flood, like a, a river in full spate, or like a tsunami, and you just can't stand. You, you're, you're carried away by the current. And then thirdly, the one that maybe resonates with me most as I look back over my life, times when I felt that I was caught, when I was captured, when circumstances had trapped me. And David refers here to the trap and to the way in which a bird will be trapped in it, a bit like a bird caught in a net, waiting for someone to come and finish it off. But for David, these dangers are past. Praise the Lord, he shouts. He has broken the fowler's snare. He is Jehovah, the covenant God who keeps his word. He's the maker of heaven and earth, the one we met in Psalm 121. And he is a help in times of trouble. Great, great for David. Great for the pilgrims going to Zion. But so what? What does it mean for us today? Is it all ancient Jewish history? Or does it have any relevance to us? Well, I would say there are three things, especially, that it says to us. And the first and foremost is that we shouldn't be scared of our emotions. Instead, we should bring all of them to God. There's real desperation here. And there's wonderful euphoria as well. David wants the worshipers to let it rip. God is their deliverer. Worship that is cold and indifferent isn't worship at all. And worship that is merely emotional, nothing beyond it, is only self-indulgence or manipulation. But notice that David combines God-centeredness with an intellectual and an emotional response. If the Lord had not been on our side, praise be to the Lord. Our help is in the name of the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. True worship must be God-centered and must involve our emotions as well. There are psalms of grief. There are psalms of joy. There are psalms of trust. There are psalms of doubt. There are psalms of disappointment, psalms of surprise. All of them have their place in our worship. Secondly, this psalm teaches us not to be surprised when things go wrong. David, and then later on the pilgrims, were all in God's will. Suffering and trials are part of our life here, and God does not promise his people that they will escape them. God doesn't promise to be with us if we pass through the waters and if we pass through the fire. God promises to be with us when we pass through the waters and through the fire. So when tough times come, don't be surprised. Don't automatically think you've got away from God or God has gone away from you. Tough times come. And thirdly, in those tough times, God helps his people in their distress. Perhaps you can identify with some of those powerful word pictures that David painted of his distress. Have you ever felt 
under a sustained attack. Have you ever felt that there were people out to destroy you? Have you ever felt that misfortunes had accumulated in your life like some sort of rain-swollen river that had burst its banks and you were being swept away, helpless? Have you ever felt trapped by your circumstances? Circumstances of broken relationships, circumstances of unemployment, circumstances of illness, circumstances that just make you feel like that bird caught in the fowler's snare. If that's you this morning, then this psalm is your psalm. King David and the later pilgrims all experienced hostility, danger, and fear. And anyone who follows in their footsteps must expect the same. But this psalm doesn't moan, oh, if only things had been easier. No, in every circumstance, David was able to say, God was at my side. God is at your side. When you're wrongly slandered and slighted, God is on your side. When you're overwhelmed by waves of depression and grief and anxiety and guilt, God is at your side. When you feel trapped, when you feel that there's no way out, that you've lost control, that you can't escape, God is on your side. And he can silence your enemies. And he can damn the floods of despair. And he can break the fowler's snare and set you free from your circumstances. But, when I used to teach, I sometimes said, it's a but in block capitals. But he doesn't always do that. Let's think for a minute. God released Peter from prison. But a few verses before that account, he allowed Herod to kill James. History is full of Christian martyrs. Today, somewhere in the world, believers will suffer for faithfully following Christ. They will be imprisoned, or worse, for what we are doing right now. Does that mean that the God of Psalm 124 has changed? Does it mean that he's a capricious God who acts on his whims? No, no, no. Jesus told his followers to expect suffering. And at the end of Romans 8, we have that wonderful song of praise about God's love. And we focus on that beautiful description of God's love, but we don't focus so much on the situations in which we can encounter it. God's love is there in trouble. God's love is there in hardship. It's there in persecution, in famine, in nakedness, danger, and the sword. How then should we understand Psalm 124? Well, I'm sounding like somebody from the English language class now, Tom. The answer lies in the pronouns used throughout. 
In our society, we're very individualist, and everything is I, me, and mine. But that's not the way this psalm is written. David isn't writing as an individual. He's writing as a member of God's own people. If God had not been on our side, we have escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord. And what he writes has been gloriously true all through history. God has been on the side of his people in both the old and the new covenants. The gates of hell have not prevailed against them. I say this sensitively, and I say it thoughtfully. God doesn't delight in the suffering and death of his servants. But their suffering and their death is not loss. God builds his church using his experience, using their experiences. He builds his church using the hostile forces, using the floods, using the filers. It's no coincidence that one of the accessories to Stephen's death was Saul of Tarsus, who as the Apostle Paul did more than anyone else to build and strengthen the church. Stephen's suffering was not wasted. And as he died, he saw Jesus standing to welcome him. God was on his side. And Stephen's God is on our side too. God never, never forsakes his people. We have a faithful God, Yahweh, Jehovah, the Lord, the one who keeps his promises. And we have a powerful, wise, resourceful God who made heaven and earth and who has no limits to what he can do. I want to just take one final slant at this psalm. I want you to look at it in terms of New Testament truth. It can be read as a template of a truth that's more fully revealed in the New Testament. Now, Phil was showing this the other Sunday with Psalm 122, when the description of the earthly Jerusalem just didn't fit with the city, and he was clearly referring to the Jerusalem above. And in the same way, this psalm provides a picture of our sin and of how God would deal with it in the New Testament. Now, to understand this, you're going to have to do something that's very countercultural at the minute, because you're going to have to understand how awful and how vile sin actually is in God's sight. And that's something that we are very, very bad at doing. In fact, it's unfashionable and countercultural to do it at all. In public life, people talk about making errors of judgment. They talk about making mistakes or perhaps having personality weaknesses. We use all sorts of uh, soft language to, dis to, to disguise the awfulness of sin. God talks about sin as rebellion against his kingship. He talks about sin as adultery 
against, uh, against him, the one who has sought out a, a bride for himself. He talks about sin as filth. He talks about sin as death deserving. And until you see sin as God sees it, you won't really understand the language of this psalm. For people who see God's holiness and their own brokenness, then their sin is like a raging torrent that they can't control. It's like a beast that's out to destroy them. It's like a trap that ensnares them and just doesn't let them go. There is terror in the true realization of the nature of our sin, the way we can't control it and what it ultimately does to us. But this psalm is a psalm of terror defeated. It's a psalm of rescue from the wild beasts, rescue from the current that would sweep us away, deliverance from the fowler's snare. It's because the offended holy God was on our side that as Emmanuel, he demonstrated that he was with us. Emmanuel, God with us. If God had not been with us, the two are linked. And as Emmanuel, on the cross, he took the consequences of our sin so that we could be rescued from its penalty and from its power. As Emmanuel, God on the cross experienced all the terror of hell's armies. In Psalm 22, which describes the Savior's sufferings, he cries out, rescue me from the mouth of the lions. We're in Psalm 124 again. He experiences all the overwhelming waves and breakers of God's wrath crashing against him. And he appeared to be well and truly trapped on the cross. He saved others. Let him save himself. But on the cross, the power of sin was broken. And on that first Easter Sunday morning, the whole world saw that the fowler's snare had been destroyed. Death was defeated. The God who was on our side, Emmanuel, had destroyed death and all of its terrors. God is on your side. As an individual this morning, know that God is with you. As a church this morning, remember that God is always on the side of his people. And if you don't know him this morning, if all this seems a bit strange to you, remember that a loving God is at your side, inviting you to call to him for freedom, for deliverance, for life. And then you'll be able to experience the joy of this psalm. Where does your help come from? <clears throat> well, you will then be able to say, in the closing words of the psalm, our help is in the name of the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. In a few moments of stillness, just bring those situations in your life, in the lives of people whom you love, where they need to know, where you need to know, God on your side. Let's silently pray.
Our help is in the name of the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. One day, 2,000 years ago, the maker of heaven and earth meekly bowed his head and entered death. One day, the heavens that he made darkened. One day, the earth that he made quaked violently. That day, Emmanuel showed the extent to which he was on our side by becoming sin for us. If God had not been on our side, there would have been no one to take our blame. If God had not been on our side, let us all say it, if God had not been on our side, then we would have had to bear God's wrath ourselves. One day, death was crushed to death. One day, the fowler's snare was broken, broken for all eternity. One day, God showed the principalities and powers that he was on our side. Emmanuel took our sins, and as a result, we stand forgiven at the cross.